Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, progressively horrified listeners. Jeremy Whitley here with a very special episode of the podcast where we hold horror movies to standards they never agreed to. Today, along with myself and my co-hosts, Ben Kahn and Emily Martin, we have two very special guests, the writer of Anna and the Apocalypse, Alan McDonald, and the choreographer as well as the actress who plays one of our favorite characters, Steph North, Sarah Swire. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank Thank you. It's really amazing to have you guys here. When we were covering In and the Apocalypse, which was definitely like our second episode, and we were still just like, we're going to try and figure it out as we go along. We definitely never expected that we'd actually uh, be talking to you guys. So this is super cool. Thank you for, you know, like being interested in the film and and having such a wonderful chat about it as well. I mean, I listened to the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm so glad to hear that. I did have to briefly go like, I better go back and re-listen that podcast, make sure I apologize for anything I need to. <laughs> no, do you know what, actually? I, I think what's really, I was kind of raving about your podcast after I uh, heard it, only to my wife because we're in lockdown and the, the poor woman only sees me these days. There's nothing more insufferable than a writer talking about their, their writing. But it was so lovely to be able to go and say, oh my God, they, they get it. They really get it. <laughs> you know all those and and honestly uh you know and ben especially like even i think i think there are criticisms you have that are perfectly fair and that are really interesting to hear from your point of view and i what what really strikes me about this movie is that we all went in knowing that this would be what we would call in the uk a marmite film which is you know some people are probably gonna love this and some people are gonna hate this thing that we make and i always think it's really lovely when uh if even the you know the whole piece didn't work for someone completely. They can find things to say that really move them or really affect them in a positive way. And I think you did that in a really classy fashion. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, and hell, there was so there is so much to appreciate and enjoy about this movie. Like, there's just so much heart and care in every level of it. Even if not everything totally works 100% for me, that level of care and love is always going to just mean so much. Yeah, I mean, we're all still best friends. It's wild. <laughs> it is wild, yeah, yeah. We still have a chat group, which we were all lit up in oh. earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> Constantly talking. That is so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this film, it was, I could see how much everybody was really enjoying themselves. And that is a, that is always a dream to see in any sort of medium. You know, for, unfortunately, uh, Chris couldn't be here, but um, I can definitely convey a similar amount of excitement and love for this movie. I'm really happy that, that Chris and Jeremy and Ben introduced me to it because I had a wonderful time. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out here and say I'm not usually a musical fan, but this film was so delightful all the way through. I loved the music. I loved every actor's performance. Um, Steph was my favorite character, um, and I'm not just guys. saying that because you're here, but uh, <laughs> Steph, is, Steph is the best. Um, I think more Steph was definitely on all of our notes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, for loving Steph, because I think we all love her very much, too. Yeah, she I'm, was I'm, a, a gem. I'm sure you heard, but one of our recurring notes was like, uh, yeah, every time Steph sings, it's amazing. Steph should be singing more in this movie. Where is Steph's big solo number? Thank you. I am working on a three-track EP at the moment, so that'll come out next year at some point. Yes, please. Um, That's going to be amazing. I'm very excited. It's been a long time coming. 
it's been a lot of like empty promises from like 50 year old audio engineers who are like, I'm going to make you a star. And I'm like, all right. And then I show up in their studios and they're neck and back a bottle of Jack Daniels and they can barely hit the keys. And I'm like, I'm gonna go another route. <laughs> and then, oh, and then just like, you know, trying fecklessly for so long to put my ideas in the hands of other people who have their own ideas about me and realizing kind of recently that I have all the tools to do this alone and that I actually should be able to pull this off with everything that I have, you know, in my brain and in my hands. So I'm just trying to kind of learn how to do this DIY style. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, that's beautifully said too. That's something a lot of artists like out, especially right now, I feel really need to hear because putting your work in the hands of somebody else is really difficult and it's it's exceptionally rare that you can find somebody that that really understands and you know vibes well um, which is so incredible even about you know about like Anna and and so nice to see that like our friendship translates in mm. the energy of the film because it's so weird that that's not a priority for these ensembles and companies to understand that you need to put people who get along together in a room in order to make good things happen yes like and that's what you should be striving for. And that doesn't necessarily mean like holy, you know, like chemistry testing, but like literally like designing your, your super squad. So all of you are just going to have a riotous time throwing ideas at each other and bringing each other up instead of kind of trying to compromise your personalities in order to get by day to day. I just, I see it, you know, working in Toronto on, on TV sets and I see it in even young graduate films being made that people are just picking the loudest people rather than picking the people who form a family and I'm so grateful that we got to do that Nana. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad to hear that's how it was behind the scenes just because again that love for like just the story for the, for the characters especially just came through so strongly just that and it made me really care for all the characters too. Mm. Absolutely. Oh. That's so lovely to hear. Um, it's really it's funny you talk about the, you know where Steph solo because uh, A you're right uh, but uh, <laughs> you know so the thing with Anna that's really interesting because you know, I, I've done a, I've talked a lot about the movie over the last few years, um, and it's actually it's always really lovely that it comes up again around about Christmas because it's God, it's such a privilege to be part of a thing that people have made their kind of new tr Christmas tradition. Which still blows my mind, but um, you, you find yourself kind of revisiting a lot of those stories, and it's very easy to kind of sit and go, well, you know, kind of looked over the script and you had to look at certain points, but actually, I think the truth was we were all brand new. You know, we were all um, just coming up together. We were all rookie filmmakers. Uh, very few of us had gone to film school, very few of us. And, and we were just kind of trying to make this thing happen. In terms of the background of the movie, I always think it's really nice to mention, um, because it doesn't always come forward when people discover the movie for themselves, that the, the film had a really long kind of history and gestation period. Uh, and it came from the mind of a guy called Ryan McHenry, who was a, a Scottish filmmaker um, who uh, was at film school when he was watching High School Musical with his girlfriend and just had a bit of a temper tantrum and was getting really bored and just out of nowhere threw his arms up and said, God, I just wish a bunch of zombies would come in and eat everyone so something interesting would happen. <laughs> and that stuck in his head for a long time. And when he got to the end of his second year at film school, all of his kind of contemporaries were making their end of year film and they were doing what you would expect. You know, they were doing student films. So it was all trauma and abuse and slightly strange, surreal... Uh, you know, vignettes all put together to show how many, uh, how many French filmmakers they had appreciated down the years. And Ryan, uh, Ryan went to his friend, Nason. So Nason Alai Karu is the managing director of Blazing Griffin now, the company that made Anna. Uh, and he was the producer of Anna the Apocalypse alongside Nick Crumb. And he went to his friend, Nason. They had met in their same hometown at a party a few years before. 
Uh, Nason, I believe, was studying like international relations at St. Andrews Uni or something like that. He's not at all, his, his background isn't in film. I just said to Nason, would you produce a zombie musical for me? And Nason had said, so the story goes, no, that's a really stupid idea. Why would anyone do that? <laughs> Uh, and Ryan had basically just said, oh, please. And they, they got a group of their friends together. Um, and of that group of friends, and this would have been 2009, I guess, or, or maybe 10, uh, and of that group of friends who made the original shorts, um, our second assistant director was on that crew. Our production designer, who was Ryan's best friend, uh, was the prop maker on that crew. Nason and Nick were the producers. And I feel like some of the people involved in some of the other departments might also have been involved in that earlier uh, shoot. And they, they were on the feature when it was made seven years later. But the reason I bring that up with that is this, this all predates me. Um, they were a bunch of student filmmakers who made a very silly, very fun, exciting, ambitious short that was discovered at a tiny um, local film festival by a production company based out of Glasgow in Scotland. And at exactly the same time, in a sliding doors-esque fashion that still terrifies me to this day, um, I had met a guy at a rookie screenwriter's night over a summer holiday because I was a high school teacher. I was a high school teacher of English and drama for 12 years. Um, wow. a, lot of, a, lot of, and a lot of that time, I was writing Anna um, during the kind of development. Uh, and I had met this other guy at a rookie screenwriter night. A year later he became a script reader for that film company I mentioned. He and I had become friends and were trying to kind of co-write a horror together. And when this film company picked up the option on this zombie musical short with these young student filmmakers who immediately thought they'd made it, Ryan went off to try to write a feature version, but Ryan was fundamentally a director and it was kind of a 60 page, you know, skeleton of what the movie would be, but very much images and moments. And my friend, Mike, who was the script reader at the company, brought, said, to his, said to his bosses, look, I've got a friend who is a wannabe screenwriter who's a high school teacher of drama who loves <laughs> Buffy and Glee. You should ask him to take a look at this script and just tell you what he thinks. And I received it on like this really rainy Wednesday night. I just got back from school and I was shattered. But I watched the short and thought, God, that's so clever. And I read Ryan's script and kind of went into this fugue state and spent uh, an hour just battering out notes, which I was consistently disclaiming and apologizing for and saying, look, who am I? But here's what I would do. And my students wouldn't speak like that, but they would laugh at this. And I think the sequence is great, but maybe you want to think about this with the character. And a week later, I was invited to meet Ryan and I was made co-writer. And that was in 2010. Um, and the reason I always bring this up is because we developed the movie for a long time and it wasn't even a Christmas movie at that point. I think it was a year later on Boxing Day, December 26, when Ryan called me, very excited to say, this should be a Christmas movie. Uh, and it would be, uh, be like a summer style. graduation flick. And the reason I always like to mention Ryan is because sadly, uh, he developed bone cancer in 2015 and we lost him. Um, so essentially the movie that I had been brought on, uh, you know, with a brand new friend and co-writer that I'd made uh, from his head, um, we worked on it for like three years together and then he got sick and we had to wait during that period for him uh, to, to hopefully get better. And, and sadly, that's not what happened. And I ended up having to become solo writer in a movie that I didn't originate upon which I was previously co-writer. But that thing you're talking about, Ben, the kind of family dynamic, Nason, again, who was one of Ryan's best friends, you know, in Ryan's kind of final days had gotten to him and said, look, this is your film. What do you want us to do? And Ryan had said, if you've got a chance, you've got to make it. And Honestly, I think it was like not even a year after Ryan passed, they managed to find the financing. And then we brought in John McPhail, who ended up directing the film for us, who was a, just a, is a wonderful, wonderful man um, and really full of heart himself and was incredibly respectful of the incredibly difficult job they had to take on. But Nason and Nick as the producers, John as the director, 
um, uh, Roddy Hart and Tommy Riley who wrote the music. And, you know, I was in there, our script editor, um, Gillian Christie. Even in that development stage, we formed a proper little family and we were really working hard together on making this thing happen for ourselves, because again, this was going to make our careers, but also for Ryan. And then when the time came to cast, a big thing for John obviously was all the people that would be the best performers here, but the chemistry was so important to him. And I remember, I don't think I've ever told Sarah this, I remember Sarah's first self-tape because John said- Oh God. (laughs) And what is super interesting about it is Sarah's take on that character was completely different in her original audition, but it was still awesome. Mm. Uh, And it was a scene which was shot, but ended up being cut from the movie with Anna and Steph in the toilets of the bowling alley. And they have this lovely little quiet moment where they just share about their families. And it's a little touchstone moment between Anna and Steph, which I always really loved. Um, But for pacing issues, it didn't quite make the film. But Steph has this speech about how, um, you know, parents can be a nightmare. And just before her parents disappeared off to take their holiday in Mexico, they were going to take her away for a trip, like a city break. And it ended up being in Birmingham. And it was just very, very clear that they just got themselves like a, like a, a coupon thing. And actually they didn't care that much. But, but Sarah did this incredible sardonic kind of like resigned cigarette in hand take on this speech that was gorgeous. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, this is great because Steph is a character I'm really struggling with. I think a lot of this is a lot of good stuff in the page. I'm really happy with what I'm doing. But what I haven't found yet is that, that, that little spark that tells me this is what makes her who she is compared to everyone else. Hmm. And it was right there on Sarah. From the moment she did that, that audition and John was saying from day one, look, this is who I want. And Aww. then we cast her and Sarah did something completely different with the character <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> so much more interesting and so much better. But that all came from the same thing you're talking about there, that kind of collaborative family, everyone getting together and working things out together. And mm. I have already done that, that monologue thing that I always try not to do. So I shall pass over to Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> But I was just going to add, like, I didn't know what I was going to do with Steph until everything was on. Like, it was like, I think it is a combination of that and the fact that, like, people bring out the best in you. And if you do have, like, a fam around you and a really strong community, then the possibility for everybody to, yes and, like, in the traditional improv way to provide a, you know, an option and then to build upon it is just like limitless. And it started with meeting everybody else and being like, how do I fit into this group of people, this group of kids as our characters, but also like a person outside of these roles. And then I got the costume on and I cut my hair and I dyed it white. And then suddenly we're there in the cafeteria scene, which was the first scene we shot out of everything. And like, I started talking and it was not what I rehearsed. Uh, (laughs) And like, like, I started doing all these weird mannerisms and this weird speech thing came out. And I was like, oh, this is who I was. Like literally just like, this is who I was in high school. I was like a really weird queer kid. And all my friends who are now out and proud and queer were so weird. We were having (laughs) such a hard time trying to figure out what version of some sort of like gendered archetype we should present today instead of like being ourselves. And it was like a huge struggle. And I think that that kind of like representation of this dysphoria that a lot of people who are queer and are constantly told to be one thing or the other never really kind of like have this grounded sense of communication or self or identity. And it makes you flail a bit. Like, of course she's angry and passionate about the things she wants to transform in the world. And that's kind of what guides her truly her herself and her spirit through the world that's her soul's purpose 
And that's very clear. And if you have that, then you can kind of, you know, a person can flower very strongly out of that if you know what you want to do with your limited time on this planet. But yeah, awkward and gawky and gangly and, and stuttery and like slightly on the spectrum, like not quite fully um, and doesn't know that herself either. And it's very hard to kind of, I think, especially for women to even know that they're on the spectrum sometimes and uh, trying to convey that as authentically and as genuinely as possible because that needs to be seen. I'm so glad you said that because Jeremy had asked <laughs> me a question about that on Twitter uh, when we first got into contact because obviously in the, in the podcast you guys had mentioned that there was uh, a sense in looking at Steph as a character that perhaps she's on the spectrum and Jeremy asked, was that an intention? And my reply was, was basically like, I'd always seen the character as a bit of an activist and an outsider and she definitely didn't fit but that canteen day is so important to me in my memory of the movie because, you know, uh, we all were flying by the seat of our pants and watching what um, Sarah did. There's a line at the end of that, that scene where, and I added it so late, where she says to, uh, to the other kids when she's organized, she's arranged with Chris to, to shoot the, um, the soup kitchen that night against Savage's Wishes. And she says, let's, uh, let's see that asshole try to get out of this one. And in my head, when I wrote that line, it was like, I want to give Steph a little sense of like fire and ambition as she leaves this scene and show that she's not been beaten down by that. And in my mind, it was very much like almost under her breath to herself. But obviously I'm not on set and I'm not blocking it. I'm not the director, I'm not the actor. And watching what Sarah did instead, turning it into this really awkward attempt at humor to bond with these other kids, which completely <laughs> fails, is so much better than what I wrote. So much better. It's but such hearing an that came from moment. you, yeah. This is, uh, this is incredible, because I have all of this stuff written down I wanted to ask you, and you guys are just interviewing yourselves. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was something that very much came up. I think Ben had some, some things to say when we were uh, talking about it, about how there, there are so many films in which there is an attempt to convey the sexuality or the queerness of a character, and they don't seem to know how to do it, and that Steph seems like from the get-go, she just uh, has sort of this honest queerness about her, and like that that's, that that's never really in question of that character. And um, I think also a lot of a lot of the people I know who who have those qualities who exhibit those qualities are also you know on on the spectrum somewhere. And I think that very much came across to me. And I was like, oh, like this is what wh you know whether it's necessarily intentional or not. It seems like this is a conveying of, of somebody who is is on the autism spectrum in a an honest, not you know intentionally ginned up for you know for props kind of way. Mm. I have quite a few, three of my best friends are uh, on the autism spectrum and they're all women and are just like so genuine and remarkable and oh, you would never, truly, truly, truly never know. And like, but it's just this, I don't even know how to describe it, truly beautiful kindness and self-awareness and awareness of the world that I, that is hilariously never really exhibited in like which is a horrible term, but like neurotypical people is just like, I just have such a, I've, I like, they are incredible and didn't learn till way later on in their lives that they were slightly autistic and like, and have had like this weird coming to with it and like coming to understand it better and, um, and what that means for them and how, you know, the different prisms in which they perceive the world through. And it's like, they're, yeah. And, 
such an interesting demographic, specifically, I think, in women, it's really interesting. There's a lot of really interesting documentaries made about it as well that I only found afterwards. Um, but yeah. The genuineness of, of all of these characters for a movie that's like a comedy zombie musical is incredible. And I really, I, I love to hear that, you know, Alan, that you were a high school teacher because that really comes across like those, the, the, <laughs> um, and you know, Sarah bringing something from your, your um, high school past that all of that um, really enriches those characters and gives us such a wonderful, um, delightful, look on you know just these honest and genuine characters and I, I work with teens I work I've been working with teens for the last 12 years and I can say you know that these this is true to them you know yeah. it, the, all of them and many of them are on the spectrum and some more than others but um, you know I think that it's really great to have a fun movie that's not about their struggles so much as uh you know have those characters there and have them be genuine and have you know not have all like a lot of uh movies that i've seen about teens just have so much of this contrived like you know here's our archetype here and there's that archetype there but um you know while we see archetypes in anna the apocalypse they're they're all i mean they're they're subverted certainly but they're they're just people they're honestly genuinely wonderful people and um it was uh there was a point where chris and ben i believe were talking about how they were dancing like teenagers and that was, and, and you know, um, Sarah, I don't know if you, uh, how much you were part of that particular scene where um, Anna, they were in the, the graveyard and they were doing these like really kind of funky dances during yeah. that number. That was like um, the best day, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> like the best day. Like that, that was, was so much character, so much individual characters I felt got, got communicated just through how they were dancing. Well, I think it's really important as a choreographer is that you're in charge of people's self-worth in a weird way when you start telling them how to conduct their bodies because that's theirs. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think a lot of choreographers, and that's totally fine. It's a different way of working, but coming with an agenda and you fulfill the agenda and you have to practice militantly until you achieve what the choreographer is set out to achieve. But I work and have worked mostly with people who don't have an extraordinary background in dance. Um, <laughs> and even if many dancers do, like I like we're riddled with dysmorphia and doubt because of growing up in like really archaic institutions, dance institutions that they'd still put your weight on the wall. And like, that's what I came from. And that's what I'm afraid of. And what I want more than anything is to make people provide people an opportunity to express themselves physically that feels like they can do, can do it. And like, there's nothing that, there's no amount of editing, there's no amount of directing that can take away the look of confusion and fear and self-doubt in someone. But if you give people an opportunity to just be themselves and to play and to celebrate, like that it always translates. And that always comes through and you see people getting lost in something they love. And then you too, because we are, we're all, you know, the same creatures. We feel that energy intrinsically and empathically through the screen. So what you want to do is create an environment for people to feel alive rather than, you know, fail. And I think that's, yeah, that's been, was my mission with the film. It continues to be my mission as a choreographer. Yeah. It's, it's also, interesting to me that you say that. Cause I think, um, I think right after we, 
we first started talking about uh, having you come on, I, I decided to go uh, dig up some other uh, Sarah Swire projects and try and uh, <laughs> see, see what else you've done. Uh, because uh, Anna and the Apocalypse was, you know, the first thing I'd seen you in. And uh, one thing that occurred to me right away, because I watched Listen Up, Emily, and uh, <laughs> Some Other Place, and uh, the One Man Flash Mob series. Oh, my God! I forgot <laughs> about all, that! <laughs> they're, all, they're all available online. Um, and I was like, I, I feel like Sarah must, like, have a thing about character and about, like, just getting into, you know, these these interesting characters and getting into their heads in these stories because, uh, you know, those are all so very, like, personal feeling. Even, you know, the the wild weirdness of, you know, the, the one-man flash mob story. Mm-hmm. But uh, especially, like, I, I think watching Listen Up, Emily, was where I actually figured out that, like, you were a choreographer because I was like, oh, she's she's actually, like, a really good dancer. And I was like, oh, wait, hold on. She's listed as choreographer on End of the Apocalypse, too. Oh, wow. You feel like that's what kind of draws you to stuff like End of the Apocalypse is, you know, this... Dual responsibility (laughs) or characters. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the... No matter what, right? Like, if something is absent of character or full of character, I'm still going to take it and embody it and turn it into my version of that. Like, um... But that's half the fun is like is trying to taste these words and feel them in your in in your brain and feel them in your body and figure out how they make you feel and figure out how to make them sound natural and figure out how to provide something interesting to the person you're acting against. Like, I think we all forget as actors too that it's a, it's like a service job. It's like you're a part of you're servicing something constantly. You're servicing the person in front of you. You're servicing the writer. You're servicing a narrative. You're servicing a bigger picture. And we, and young actors get given this, I don't know. We just, I think there's been a lot of mistakes made in Hollywood, but like this feeling that they're the most important thing and they're probably the least important thing actually. And you got to provide a good role to the piece so other people can bounce off that, you know? Like all you're doing is providing offers for other people to be brilliant. If you don't have a feeling of that, then people don't, I don't know. I just, I'm always aware that no matter what I'm doing, I'm doing it for the people around me so they can do a good job and wanting to make sure that everybody else is thriving. That's awesome. It's important. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I have to ask, hearing that, uh, that you were a teacher for such yeah. a long while, uh, any true to life experiences in the Arthur Savage character? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, please. So this, uh, so uh, when, when, the, when the movie was released, um, Two really lovely things happened, one of which made me laugh a lot, uh, but a lot of my old students went to see it, uh, mm-hmm. which honestly just made, I, I spent a week crying as, as messages came oh. in from people I hadn't taught for like five years coming back oh. and just saying, I went to see your movie and I can't believe my drama teacher's name was on the screen and I'm so Alan. excited. It was, it, was, it was lovely. Oh. But also a bunch of my old colleagues, teaching colleagues, all went together, went to the, the GFT in Glasgow, the kind of the film theater in Glasgow, um, and all went out together one night to go see the film. And then he sent me a massive selfie of like 17 of them sitting at the bar afterwards having seen my movie, which was beautiful. And then the very next message was, so which one of us is Savage based on? To which I said, it's an amalgam, darling. But, uh, yeah. but no, uh, so the, Savage as a character, it's a really, Savage is a weird one to talk about. Um, in, the, in the original short, Savage was a... Um, in fact, it wasn't called Savage at the time. The we gym teacher, the right? Yeah, he was the PE teacher. 
uh, played by uh, Callum, I believe, who's our, who's our zombie, zombie Santa, Santa in the final yeah. feature. Um, Callum, in a weird twist of fate, was in the adult uh, youth theater in the same hometown as me when I was in youth theater way back in the day myself. So like Whoa. we knew each other from when I was like 10 years old and then didn't see each other again until much, much later when we made a short together with the same people who would make Anna. Very strange. Anyway, um, that original short, um, Ryan had, had, had kind of gravitated towards the idea of, well, if we can have a villain in a high school, it's obviously the PE teacher, right? Um, <laughs> and for, for a while, that character remained that way. In the very first draft of the feature, uh, there's a sequence where Anna and John play dodgeball, and they're the last two left. Uh, and I really liked it. Like, there was something, I still to this day thought it was a really fun sequence. But there came a point, the movie went through so many different forms. There was, there was I don't think I've ever told this story either. There was a point after he was a PE teacher where the, the film became super political for one draft. <laughs> and, uh, and not even like socially political, like politically political. And it, it, was set, it was set on election day. And there was a whole thing about Savage belonging to like the local council. It was far too complex. I don't remember why we went down that alley, but we played a lot with the idea of authority figures. And in the end, what I'd said to Ryan when we settled was, the problem with PE teacher is it's kind of charged. And the thing that you did in the original movie where you like hog ties Anna and stuff, it just felt a bit sexual in a way that was super uncomfortable. And when we were thinking about the movie as a whole and what it had to say, the other thing to remember is this movie was written and then shot across the 2010s. And in the UK, that means austerity. Um, and very specifically, you know, obviously I was teaching until 2015 and we made the movie in 2017. So I watched all of those uh, public services be stripped back. I watched those kids in my class who had learning needs lose their learning support and get thrown into a class of 30 with everyone else and just expected to keep up. Like I watched I, all of this stuff happen. I think you just I, answered your own question on where that uh, political draft Yeah, <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and basically where we settled as we kind of moved into the later drafts was we want to tell a story about generational differences. Uh, and in Scotland, we had the independence referendum in 2014. And in the UK, we had the Brexit referendum in 2016. Hmm. And both referenda, referenda, I think that's just what posh people call it. Both referendums. <laughs> referenda. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. It's like, it's like an octopus. Referendodes. Um, the, uh, <laughs> both of them divided down generational um, lines very very starkly and when i started to think about okay so we want an authority figure for anna to bounce off but the head teacher is too it's too obvious it's too simple and the one thing that i never know i should say this is absolutely not best on not based on old colleagues but there is a running uh kind of slightly slightly tired eye roll that goes amongst career teachers who have really really done the work. You know, those of us who stayed late and did the clubs and the school shows, who lost our lunch times when, you know, a student wanted to come up in tears to talk about their bullying or the fact that they'd been off for a week because they had to go for an abortion. There's a bunch of stuff that happened in my career, which I feel incredibly privileged to have been part of that taught me a lot about young people. And then there were the other teachers, definitely in the minority, but they existed, who existed purely to climb the ladder. Mm. I remember explaining this to Ryan one day that like head teacher and like head of PE are too simple. What we want is the deputy head who's always wanted to run the school uh, because you will always find teachers in promoted posts who are less interested in teaching and more interested in it becoming their own personal fiefdoms. Yeah. Uh, and that's where Savage came from. And it was never based on one, absolutely never based on one particular individual, but you would pick a little, you know, there was a, the very earliest draft, he, he was quoting a lot of um, classical references. He referenced the Romans a lot and stuff. It all became quite tedious in the end. But the notion that he had 
that kind of slightly mannered way of speaking and that he very deliberately would watch his P's and Q's and would lecture a lot and just generally thought, you know, generally expected, that he generally um, considered himself to be an, uh, you know, an authority and an expert in most things. That all stayed. Um, and there was a backstory, which sadly kind of got lost in the mix a little bit, and it was in previous scripts, but actually in my head, this is still canon. And if we ever do more with the property in the future, it remains canon. He knew Tony when they were growing up. So in my mind, Savage grew up in that town. And I think he was a bullied kid. And I think he was the kid who uh, never really got out of town, but has found a way up a ladder into a position of authority in town and is now determined to punish everyone for the way he felt growing up. And that's why he hates kids. That's why he acts the way he acts. And that's why he kind of goes full uh, Colonel Kurtz towards the end. I, <laughs> I would be remiss, remiss, however, if I didn't point out that as much as those lines are those lines on the page, um, Paul Kay, when he took on the role, definitely brought a lot of himself to it and had a very specific um, take on how he wanted to play the uh, pettiness of that character and the broadness of that character. And there's a lot of Paul in the way that he approached that. Um, and there are a couple of improvised lines as well, um, you know, here and there. Uh, I wish, I wish I could take credit for Withdraw Tongues, but that was Paul. Um, I, <laughs> Withdraw oh, your tongues! Uh, yeah. uh, that that sounds that very yeah. on the moment. It, it felt uh, like... Uh, our, uh, it, our theory was that he was related to Immortal Caveman DC villain Vandal Savage. I, I, I love that. I really love that. But I love the idea that he was the run to the litter. He was like, he was the savage no one ever talks about. Which also, I'm perfectly happy to accept as canon. Uh, along with Anna and Steph getting together at the end. But I don't even think that's fan canon anymore. I think most people just accept that now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey. yeah I, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, you say all that about Savage, because my, my wife is also a high school teacher, and we have talked frequently about the like the weird quality that um, if if you want to do more from being a high school teacher, that apparently the next step is becoming a principal, and the people who are good at one of those things are not good at the other thing, and there's that should yeah. not be a career path. It's it's you know it's rare, uh, but I do I I knew a couple of principal teachers actually who were also phenomenal teachers and who I believe actually only went for the principal job because they knew what the alternative would be. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, okay, well, I need to do this because if I don't, we're all in for hell for the next 10 years. And they mm. remained wonderful teachers. I know a lot of really great principals and I know a lot of really great deputies and I wouldn't want anyone at my old job to think that I was um, dismissing that. I do think though that in, in education generally, there is a really strange mismatch when it comes to those who entered the job vocationally because they wanted to teach and then the necessity for management uh, and, and where those two things meet. But that is a very boring topic to get into instead of talking about Anna the Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> well, the character is still so wonderfully diabolical. I mean, the, every combination that it's, it really makes sense when you're talking about how he was bullied and all that kind of yeah. stuff because he's, he's also seems like a person that is is always waiting for that chance at revenge, but is also obsessed with becoming the cartoon authority figure, you know, the, yeah. and as, as uh, Jeremy and Ben and Chris said in the review, you know, the middle management dream of, you know, <laughs> being the, the manager. <laughs> and I, mean, and I love that backstory too. It fits so well with uh, his solo number, like nothing's going to stop me now. Yeah. Which Paul K was just, he was so, so much fun in that. He ate all the scenery on that scene. He, he was had a great day. I saw after he shot that and he had completely ruined his back. Oh, <laughs> it's no. it like I had an amazing day yesterday. It was an amazing day yesterday, mate. I can't. I just can't move today. 
It's just, just really so bad. Oh, yeah, you had a great time on that. Threw himself into that. That was yeah. wild. There were things where I'm like, like, we'd suggested some stuff, and then, of course, they were like, we can't do that because of safety problems. And Paul's like, I'm just going to do it. I'm like, I didn't, don't tell them that I said you could, <laughs> but you can do whatever you want, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> So, Sarah, how did you end up uh, becoming the, the choreographer for the movie? Because you, you auditioned for it as an actress, right? Alan, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, yeah, that, there were a lot of conversations going on at the time. That, that's probably more of a Nathan and John and Nick question. I do know that when you were floated for the part of Steph, I remember John in a phone call afterwards saying, she can choreograph as well. Uh, and I was like, well, that, that sounds excellent, uh, I guess. Uh, I don't know much about it. So I, I, don't, I, I do know that <laughs> maybe I should no this is fine it's fine it all worked out um there were some issues getting Sarah over in pre-production oh, yeah, that was crazy I oh my god <laughs> uh which it all worked out uh, and I I do think there are many stories to be told maybe considerably further in the future uh, about about the, the travails that Sarah had on set but um there was a little bit of concern during pre-production that you know okay one of our actors not being able to arrive until the end of the week is inconvenient but we can manage it and then there was a realization amongst the production teams like oh god she's the choreographer as well and then <laughs> that led to a few sleepless nights i believe it all turned out <laughs> fine i um i also had a weird sliding door experience where i met john briefly at a theater um before i even knew who he was he was just happened to be there and like i was up at the canteen buying a coffee and he just walked up beside me and just started talking to me um and then I never, like, for, like, three minutes, he was like, hey, what's up? I'm like, I'm Sarah. He's like, I'm John. We just, like, had a nice kind of throwaway chat. Didn't think anything of it. Forgot who he was. And then, like, two years later, he pops up on a, on a Skype call. <laughs> and I'm like, hi. And he's like, who? I'm like, I know you. And he's like, yeah, we couldn't figure it out. And eventually we figured out that we, like, had met just, like, so briefly all those years ago. Had a very pleasant exchange. And then finally, at, like, you know, cross-Atlantically were conspiring about this film. So funny. The movie's full of that. Um, another little Easter egg. The guy who plays the head teacher with the I'm Retiring badge on was John McPhail's old English teacher who he got to do it. But again, oh. by a weird twist of fate, was also only my second ever teacher mentor at my second student placement. And I hadn't seen him since I was a student teacher uh, wow. 12 years before. Uh, and wow. I, I walked to the and went, Michael? <laughs> Alan? <laughs> And then I was like, oh, this is amazing. I didn't realize you were doing some extra work. And I went, yeah, I taught John. I like, what? This <laughs> is also crazy. Okay, another Easter egg. Chris, Chris Laveau, who plays Chris. Mm. Chris being Chris playing Chris, always. <laughs> um, uh, was in Toronto for some, I don't know why, like moved to Toronto while I was in Toronto. And the night, this is an very triggering thing to bring up, but like the original night that Trump was elected all those years uh, ago, yeah. <laughs> we were across the road from each other. Like huh. I could have walked across, if like, if my friends decided to get out of that bar and walk to the next bar, I probably would have been sitting in the same room with Christopher. That's so weird. Wow. Yeah. It's meant to be. Yeah, meant to be. <laughs> meant to be. God, I wish I was in a bar at that night. <laughs> uh, I'd still be there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Chris, uh, I think Ben, you had a question about uh, Chris and Lisa's ending in this story, right? Yeah, I think I talked about it a little, like the, just the care and the humanity that went to these characters. I feel like Chris and Lisa ended up being kind of 
at the start of the movie, I went into it being like, oh, okay, yeah, no, zombie chow. I know how this goes. Yeah. And then when they did get bitten, I was crying. Yeah. And yeah. Like, and just, uh, and heartbroken by it. But then with the ending, with them still shuffling together, you know, being able to like kind of grab each other's hands a little bit, do you consider it like a bittersweet ending? Like, do you think there's still like some happy ending there for them a little bit or do you just see it as a tragedy it's a hard one isn't it um yeah chris and lisa uh, that scene the scene in the staff room is my favorite scene in the movie and it was always my favorite scene in the script as well um which hey maybe that reflects a little badly on me in terms of maybe i was maybe i was focused on the wrong part of the ensemble uh but <laughs> I, I always always loved it now what, what's really interesting about that staff room scene interesting maybe only to me the staff room we shot that in looks so similar to the staff room of the school that I worked in all that time. And so much of that school sunk into my subconscious when I was writing the movie. Even back in the very first drafts, Chris was, Chris was always gonna die at that part of the story. Um, in very early drafts, we, Ryan and I le leaned quite heavily into the film buff stuff. And actually the last line that he used, which we thought was very clever at the time, it makes me cringe a bit now, was uh, it was actually gonna be Anna in the room with him. He was gonna get stuck with zombies. And the last thing he was gonna say to her was fly you fool. Oh, we, thought we, were, we were so clever. We were so clever. Uh, but what really struck me about that was uh, my friend, Mike, actually, I mentioned earlier, had read an early draft of the script. And when I pitched the scene to him, he was like, you know, that's fucking stupid, right? And I was like, no, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be so heartwarming. And when he read the script, he said, okay, look, um, I don't think the line works, but the scene really does. Uh, and, and the fact that I was able to we were just able to melt even his heart when he was so against the line told me that the scene was always going to work. Um, as we played around across the course of the development, different people died at various stages. There was a draft where John lived. There was a draft where Tony lived. There was a draft where they both lived that Ryan and I hated. And he was very much a, a financier like, well, you know, we should probably have some romance and you can't kill our dads. So in the end, we spitefully killed both. Uh, yes. But the... Um, <laughs> But, you know, uh, there was a draft where Lisa lived, but Chris always kind of died. Uh, Steph as a character I'll come back to in a second because there was a lot of thought that went into that. But the thing with Chris was always a really sweet guy who's just, he's fundamentally, what I love about Chris as a character is, um, and Chris Laveau was great here, I always fought against the notion of, oh, but he needs complex, you know, he needs real complexity. He, really, he needs darkness. For me, it was like, he's raised by his gran. There's darkness there, okay? There's some pain there, clearly in his past. But Chris is a ray of sunshine. He lives his life through film. He doesn't pay enough attention to the present, but ultimately he believes things will always turn out for the best. That's why his death will work. But with Lisa, I tortured myself for a long time about where that would go. Where I settled in the end was, it was really important that John died because the story was not about, well, yeah, there's a whole other story about was writing Hollywood ending and talking to Roddy and Tommy and John about if John is going to sing, sometimes the nice guys don't always get the girl. It's super important that the next thing Anna sings completely pushes back against that concept. And all the way through the DNA of the movie was the notion that if John lives, it's going to feel a lot like we're setting this up because, you know, that Anna is his prize or he is Anna's prize for surviving. So John had to die. What that meant to me, though, was I wanted, some, I wanted a really lovely payoff to do with love somewhere in the movie. And, you know, I'm sure Emily will, will be on board with this as well, um, or, or your wife, Jeremy. One thing you see, like, there is nothing more fierce or pure and ultimately sort of doomed than teenage love. And when you <laughs> see it, it is so intense and so gorgeous and so all-encompassing. But for many, not for all, but for many, there is not... Certainly not a future at the same intensity in that. And I always found something kind of beautiful in the end that 
okay, if Chris finds Lisa and Lisa finds Chris, they, they, they get back together, they've spent recently, again, it's maybe a bit more headcanon, but they've spent the last few months really thinking about the future. And I think Lisa's a little worried about the future because, you know, she's the kind of star of the show. She has the boyfriend. She's kind of loved high school. But after this, how's this going to work out? I think there's something kind of beautiful that they're sort of frozen in amber at the end. Um, I think the scene is immensely sad. But for me, what really made it work was coming up with the idea of the video and just thinking, yeah. actually, if Chris's entire arc is about I need to find meaning and, uh, I, you know, the way that I look at the world can't just be pure optimism. I need to find meaning in that. And Lisa's arc is all about kind of coming into herself and being noticed and, and, and finding a sense of, um, what's the word? You know, finding, I think people don't take Lisa seriously. And come the end, she's been through serious stuff but she's kind of maintained her sense of self. And I think when they both reach that point, looking at videos of the friends who have been their life up to this point, knowing that this is all about to end, for me, it was always beautiful enough that they did it together. And I think what Chris and Lisa, sorry, I just, Chris being played by a guy called Chris consistently trips me up. I think what Chris and Marley did so incredibly on that day was find the find real humanity in the center of what is quite a heightened and could have been quite a soapy moment um, where what they play is not, I don't think they play Romeo and Juliet. I don't think they're playing the tragedy of the doomed lovers. I think they are playing two young people who love each other dearly and in that moment have become adults. And I've just realized this is a bad thing that has happened and we just have to process it, but at least we have each other. And that little kiss and that little hug that they share at the end breaks my heart every single time. Uh, on the day that we shot it, they were both incredible and the set was in pieces. And I still remember our, um, our sound guy who, um, you know, lovely, lovely guy, very gruff, kind of kept himself. Cam? Yes, Cam. <laughs> Chris, Chris came off set after doing the first um, take and he needed to gather himself a bit. Cam, who I had not seen do this to anyone else, stepped away from his desk, watched, walked up to Chris, shook his hand and went, absolutely brilliant, mate. Oh! And I just remember thinking, okay, if even our sounds, you know, if, if even our sound guy is properly moved by this, then the moment clearly works. It's so that's my very long Alan answer to say, I think it's beautiful and I think it's heartbreaking. It yeah. really is such a, it yeah. is such a beautiful moving scene. Yeah, I, I yes, think it's, absolutely. I think it's a credit to both, both you as a writer and to the actors as well, that there's this sort of shorthand in the beginning of the movie leading up to Hollywood ending that allows you to kind of go, oh, I know this kid. Oh, I know yeah. this kid. Yeah. I know I know who this is. You know, these, oh my God, these two teenagers that just won't stay off of each other. Oh my <laughs> God, I know these kids. And that by the end, you're like, oh no, I know these kids. Like, yeah, exactly. they're yeah, like yeah, the yeah. people that I, I actually care about. Like, they have, you know, depth and interest and everything to them. Really, it's it's a really interesting gradual transition that the movie does that I think that is sort of the peak of right there. I think what else really makes it work, though, um, and, and it's easy to forget in the scene because it's not the focus of the scene, but I love Sarah's performance in that scene because she is not given as much to do as the other two, and it is all on her face. Um, and the little moment uh, where Chris gives her a little wave was literally scripted. You know, Chris, Chris gives her a little wave, she waves back, and then she leaves, I think was the way the, 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 the script um, was written. And what Sarah does with that kind of half-hearted, slightly resigned kind of, of course this happened wave. And the way, oh, Sarah, it breaks my heart every time. The way you put both straps of your bag over your back, both, both straps of your back over your shoulders like you're a little kid and just wander out, wander out of frame. 
oh, it kills me every time I watch it because I think that tells the audience, I think that gives the audience permission to be sad rather than uncomfortable with all the emotion that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think you. Sarah, between that scene and the the scene in the office right before that, where you're you're going through the <laughs> confiscated stuff, you do so much without like words in those couple of scenes that uh, that works so well because that Thank that you. scene is simultaneously like so funny and also kind of terrifying. That the there was a component of that which got cut, which was a beautiful moment that Alan had written in, where oh, she yeah. finds a card that a student had written to Savage. Um, and it's really sweet. And it might be the only student- it's the only one he ever received, yeah. Yeah, the only Christmas Aww. card he ever received. And it's like, hope, and it's just like the nicest little quick message that someone just decided to give him. And it meant so much to him that he kept it. And like, there's this really like heartbreaking moment that it was just, again, like for timing and editing and all that had to be cut. Yeah. But she finds it and she's like, oh my God, like, just like this weird realization even in stuff because everybody has to have some sort of kind of like existential turning point. We're dealing with life and death here, but like um, with her just going, fuck, like people are more complicated than I ever realized. And this man has, everybody has something to them that it can't be explained in um, so much more depth than just what they provide to you on the surface. And, and like that kind of like knowing that that was almost in like, the version of when that was included for me, at least for Steph was like, that was her moment of like growing up. Um, like she has so much maturity in so many other aspects of her life, but the missing pin for her perhaps was like true compassion. And like, and uh, rather than kind of being propelled through this world with a chip on her shoulder and, and fueled by spite, similar to Savage in a weird way. Mm. Um, and then, and, and the possibility that she could turn into something like Savage having, being a young kid who was bullied and made fun of. And then realizing, like seeing that being like, okay, this is who I'll never become. And like, I'll always learn to be compassionate and that kind of stuff. So like, it was like a really nice moment. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, it's, uh, you know, I had completely forgotten it existed until you said it and my heart's broken again. I, said, oh, I love that little Aww. moment, but there's only so much space for things. I think you, you can you can overthink stuff when you're screenwriting because there's always the concern that people are not going to get what you're trying to say. Mm. There's a lovely there's a little moment in the corridor outside which leads into that um, staff room scene where I, Chris Laveau plays this beautifully, uh, where you're walking down the corridor just before you find Lisa and uh, Steph has that little thing where they, they kind of apologize for their fight earlier and Steph and again you deliver this beautifully. She says it's okay. I, I know how I, I know how I get or I know how I am or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then Chris just replies, "Well, it's okay. You've got you've got us now." And it's like such a small little exchange, but what is on both of your faces completely sells it. And I remember sitting, talking to Jillian going, it's not enough. It's just two lines. Like this is not going to get us an arc. This is just a random couple of lines. I feel like there's not enough. And Jillian was the one that said, you just need to trust that the scene's going to play. And it really sets up everything that comes afterwards. Uh, So a lot of screenwriting I find sometimes is kind of overwriting just to make sure that everybody who's involved in acting and directing understands your intention. And then they can do everything that you've written with less, yeah. uh, just as long as you're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I will say, though, in favor of the production on this? Because I haven't seen this a ton since, even though I've worked with wonderful people. But one thing that Nathan and Nick were very strong on at the beginning was, um, and actually, to be fair, John as well, was that we were very much working as a team. And everyone had their roles. And there was, of course, a hierarchy where there needed to be. But John was very insistent that I be on set. Um, and Nick and Nathan were very open and welcoming to that as well. And it didn't. I don't know if it was always 
um, a comfortable thing for everyone across the crew mm-hmm. in terms because it was an odd thing it's not a thing that's done in the uk you know writers don't come onto sets especially in film that's very much considered a kind of an american showrunner model um, and there was a sense in that first week of just kind of like why is he here and you could definitely <laughs> see people trying to work out if i was a producer it's like i guess he just must have some hierarchy position or something it's like no i'm literally the writer um but what was really great about that was i got to meet i got to meet the actors during pre-production and i got to have you know even I don't even know, I don't think any of them, with the exception of maybe one little conversation with Ella and one with Marley, were actually formalized, let's talk about the character conversations. But just having the ability to hang out on set, talk about the scene you're doing today, how did you yesterday go, how are you finding things? I think it really helped us all get on the same page with what we were doing. And we were all very much doing, making the same thing. And that left me as a writer feeling so much more confident. Like if John... If John's blocking in the scene does something different than I intended, it's fine because I know he's got this. I know that he knows what the intention of the scene is. Mm. Um, and there was, another, there was another day we were horribly running over. Bless John, the scene in the theatre at the end. He talks about it like he's got PTSD to this day. I think it's like a 12-page scene or something. It's <laughs> proper screenwriter 101 breaking every rule because there's like two songs and a fight in it. Um, but um, getting through that was really hard and we were running over. And just off my own steam seeing how stressed everyone was getting, I went back up, John let me work out of his office and I went back up and I looked at the script and realized that there were two other scenes we were meant to shoot that day. And if I really thought about altering one, I could totally cut a scene. And I was able to go back to Nason and say, look, I've got this idea. I don't know how you guys are getting on. And then he brought in John and I was just able completely off my own steam. We cut the scene. Uh, actually, I offered to cut two and John said, no, 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 keep, keep one because I want to keep that one. But if you can cut that other one, that would really help. And in the end, I think all I had to do was, now this probably reflects badly on the script because it should be more efficient. But what all I had to do in the end, I think, was just alter a couple of lines in one of the scenes we were going to shoot. And I literally made an edit suggestion on the day and just say, so if instead of the script, you cut to this instead, this is all going to make sense. And we made our day. Now, that was the only time I did something so drastic while I was on set. But if I hadn't been there and hadn't been welcome to be there, we would have run over that day and they would have had real problems in other places. And I think that really counted across the entire cast and crew. There was a sense that we were always talking to each other, passing each other, hanging out and really being on top of the whole project. Yeah. And as a writer, I learned so much, both about performance and about post and other people's jobs. I, I hung out at the monitors with the standbys for, um, for, for makeup and costume and got to know them really well. Got to know how uh, Emma, our fight coordinator, uh, she came up to me with the most incredible question one day where she was, uh, she was getting the fight coordination together. It was, a, it was the big fight at the end. It was with Anna and a bunch of zombies. And she came up with a copy of the script and said to me, look, I'm so sorry. I'm going to ask you, do you really, like, it says here in the script, Anna's thrown against the wall by the zombies. I really don't want to, like, I'm not want to, to, you know, I, I don't want to step in your toes. I don't want to get in your kind of process or whatever. Would it be okay if it just knocked her over? And it took me a moment to realize, like, oh, you have to take this literally, don't you? You have to take this word by word. The reason that that script says Anna is thrown against a wall by zombies is because 12 months ago, we needed a financier to get excited about this scene. And that's, where, <laughs> that's why those verbs and adjectives are in there. But now you do this scene the way that works for you. I didn't know any of that. But I also think a lot of writers don't because they never get onto sets. And I also mm. think fight coordinators and uh, choreographers, and I, I actually think a lot of um, the, uh, the director's department as well, don't really understand how development works either because they never see each other's sides of the, the coin. Yeah, I'm and having a similar... John, yeah, they, they helped us all do that. 
a similar experience right now. I'm choreographing on something else right now where the director's like, okay, but you know, you got to read the stage direction before you do the choreography. I'm like, I am, but that doesn't make sense. Like, it's like, it's like similar, I guess, to that experience of being like, that's not, we, we need to be careful when we take these things literally specifically, I guess with like, you know, even like Alan, what you said about just wanting to kind of like inspire people to fund the film. Um, it's it's the same idea of like inspiring people to want to put this show into motion is like using a particular set of language adjectives and verbs that are really titillating, but like actually aren't can change and should change depending on the artists that are brought onto the the project. I know in the comic book realm, it's kind of a similar, at least on the script writing standpoint, where like I try to be detailed and give an idea of how like the panel could go, but I always try to use language, let the artist know like, this is just a suggestion. If you've got a sure. better way you want to draw it, go with your, like, you're the visual draw yeah. art maker. You do, you. <laughs> you're just As the, the artist, yeah. I, I highly appreciate that kind of script writing. <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy and I work together on Princeless and we're, you know, Jeremy has gotten to this point where he's like, just do, do, do the thing you do. There, there was a scene where it was like a magic fight or something and Jeremy's like, dude, here's a toothpaste spread magic fight make it cool and i was like i will yes <laughs> so but I, just, yeah. I just finished reading the wicked and divine which is mm. amazing uh but mm-hmm. uh, uh, i, I love kieran uh, gillen generally but uh, there was a really brilliant uh, you know I, I don't know if at the end of some of the issues he, he does kind of a breakdown of here's what a page looks like it's really interesting from from my point of view and there was a really wonderful one where i can't remember what he'd written but one of the it was going to be a big splash page and he had literally just written something like you know what you're doing just now just do me a wicked and divine page clearly you've got this partnership going out it's like this is what happens give me a wicked and divine page it's like okay cool (laughs) that's the wonderful thing about when with collaborative storytelling and i think um anna and the apocalypse is a is a wonderful uh example of that is when you have a group of people that trust each other and you know with comics it's maybe like four people you know if we're lucky but the with with film there's so many moving parts but it's just such a treat to see you know, as we've said, the, everybody, we could see everybody enjoying themselves and also everybody's contribution to the work. Um, and especially when you're trying to make a comedy movie that has to do with life and death, like there's so much potential there for it being overly complex or, you know, overly simplified. You know, there's a very, very narrow uh, line that you have to follow to really make it uh, land and it and in the apocalypse does it wonderfully one of the better i mean one of the best i would say not to i'm i'm gonna be fully honest yes i liked it better than shot of the dead i liked it better than most of the other com- zombie oh, comedies. Wow. Yeah. that's a compliment <laughs> yeah. no. well that's the thing too is that with anna the apocalypse and, and the apocalypse i was i was terrified of any of those characters dying yeah, all of those characters were so great. Even, I mean, Savage, okay, but like, <laughs> the, uh, Anna's dad, and even like John, and we talk about we talked about John a little bit. Well, um, Chris, John and- was the rare horror movie death that was so shocking. I was actually just like gasping out loud. Like I, yeah, I <laughs> shouted out loud. Yeah, like, I it, was like, what? No, so, like suddenly, and then I was, I was like. You can't kill John off yet. Like John has to survive at least another twenty minutes. What's going on? Like I was just, I was, I mean that was you know the film brain, but it was just such a shocking moment uh, and such great, especially after just how le- the levity in that scene before, like yeah. it really did feel safe, and then that safety was so violently ripped away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, the, we, we were talking about, um, well, Chris and, Chris and Ben and Jeremy, were, we were talking about Jennifer's body <laughs> um, and Chip. And we have this Chip scale now, apparently. And they were talking about how John is the closest thing, I guess, in the movie to Chip. But um, John was so much more real and likable and um yeah the and that whole scene where they're in the shopping cart and they switch that was so brilliant and there's so many things and and i think chris and ben and jeremy said it wonderfully i love the shopping cart scene yeah it's one of my favorites thank you uh malcolm and ella knocked that out the park um just it's it's a tough tough little moment uh it was one of my favorite things to write and uh it's one of the you know when, when, when you're writing for screen there's a level of having to accept that nothing is going to be the way that you expect it to look in your head. And um, because, you know, you have locations, you have, you know, you have to make your days. What's really, really amazing for me with Anna is that um, the, the kind of shopping trolley scene on the high streets and the scene at the, uh, the, during I Will Believe at the end where we cut away to all the other characters um, who have been zombified, both of those um, look exactly the way I pictured them uh, when I was mm. writing them. And That's I remember amazing. seeing the Russian... I remember seeing the rushes when John had shot the high street scene. Uh, a little, little, little aside on the high street scene, which is where, you know, talk about making uh, lemonade out of lemons. Uh, that high street um, that is destroyed and has Christmas trees and decorations all over and everything's a mess. Um, that was only partially done by the art department. It was meant to look like that for that scene. However, all of those decorations had been up looking perfect and pristine and beautiful uh, the previous day. When we had had some snow, when we shot the original opening to the movie, which was a massive song and dance number on a snow-covered street with beautiful <laughs> decorations, with uh, the, the What a Time to Be Alive song, which now, I, I guess, for the, the cuts most people see is at the end, was the opening of the film. Yeah. It was the worst weather of the entire shoot that it one day. Brutal. We showed up at 6 a.m. It had snowed. It was gorgeous. I remember looking at John going, I can't believe this. How perfect does this street look? And our, oh God, uh, Ryan Clackery, our, art, uh, our uh, production designer, art director, he, um, he was so happy. He's like, look at this place. It's gorgeous. Uh, so we all arrive up at 6 a.m. Everyone gets fed. Uh, the cast are going off to their makeup. Um, round about 8 a.m., the wind picks up and there's a little bit of rain in the air. And by the time we are due to start shooting, raging winds and rain have kicked in. Half of the decorations are falling down. We have nowhere else we're going, we can go. So we have to shoot that day. We have to shoot what we intended to do. And we spent the most uncomfortable, freezing 10 hours out in the drive. This is like, this is January in Scotland. And all because like no one was executing their vision as they desired. Like <laughs> nobody, no everyone, one. everyone was unhappy. Everyone. And then John, poor John. And then John going oh. everyone and be like, why can't you do this better? And I'm like, I am, I don't know how. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do this better. I don't know how to choreograph this better. I have done everything I can do. And this is what it, this has turned into. And there's a photo somewhere on the internet of Alan, me, Emma Claire. Tommy, yeah. And Tommy. And someone was, I think someone was just like, all right, guys, look happy. And we all just started like scream crying. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was so cold and so miserable. I remember Tommy and I by the monitors, and it must have been like three in the afternoon at that point. It was very clear that even though we were soldiering on, we could not use this footage. Oh, and we were just looking at each other. And that was where Tommy and I first talked about doing an animated opening, actually. And we suggested yeah. the idea to Nathan later. And I was just like, well, a bit like Greece, <laughs> because yeah. we can't use this. So the, the beginning of the movie was meant to be that. And the reason I bring it up now is because the destruction, which was, <laughs> which was wrought by the weather, gives that whole scene an amazing look on the very next day when the weather calmed down, the sun was in the sky, and they shot that scene with the shopping trolleys as, uh, as the sun was going down. And it's gorgeous because you've got this destroyed high street uh, and the whole scene becomes about these two friends who are finally admitting to a really difficult truth between them against just devastation. Um, mm. So I was so pleased given my, my big worry, because I love that scene and it's such an important scene. My big worry coming out of the day coming out the day that our beautiful opening was destroyed by the weather was we would get the same weather the next day and we would have to try something different and not be able to use our shopping our shopping trolleys um but as it turned out yeah i think it's a lovely little scene and and, and they do brilliant work and the shopping trolleys really just to add this great like physicality to the scene yeah Um, Yeah. so the song that chris would never forgive us if we didn't (laughs) ask for like a bit of a breakdown on soldier at war (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah, so funny shopping carts oh it's uh yeah soldier at war so i mean it's a shame we don't have roddy and tommy um the geniuses that they are uh soldier at war went through like other things many different forms um it was originally intended to be a um almost like an ode to video games uh in a very very early dra- i remember ryan referencing scott pilgrim um yes. a lot with that and just saying, I actually want this to be a really surreal kind of crazy sequence where like they're in a video game store. So, okay, that's interesting, okay, yeah. So a little bit of that carried forward to the end. The final version, it was very clear we did not have the budget to I hire and press a video game store and then destroy it. So I'd written I it as- a freeze frame be like, is that a Nintendo 64 yeah. controller? <laughs> yeah. So this is amazing. Yeah, the controller <laughs> stuff made it through. I'd written it in a, a, a car park. Um, like a multi-story because I thought actually that that's a bit like levels and in the end we had the location we had so where that is shot is just around the corner from where the high street location is but with the with Roddy and Tommy it was always about okay what we want from this is we want this to be the moment in the film where Nick who we have generally considered quite rightly to be an asshole up until now kind of pulls people around a little bit because he's so charismatic um and this is a song works. all about yeah, doesn't it but do you know what um you know i, I think there are I, th- I think the way that john directed it is gorgeous do you know the one thing that i wish we'd kept which is a shame and i know i didn't because it's stupid but at one point <laughs> in the script i referenced john Wu and said it's like a doves moment but they're using toilet roll which I thought would have been really <laughs> funny, but um, we couldn't. The toilet roll was a problem. But he, like all the other stuff with the, the stake on the the um, the fishing line, the kind of using the controllers um, as weapons. The watermelon moment is all John. Uh, that was his idea, and it's genius and gorgeous and funny. The water slow motion water over the face was mine in the script, but John realized what he really wanted. He told, oh god, he told. Um, the actor uh, playing Graham, uh, who's the character with the watermelon, when you break that watermelon, you're going to be slow motion. And I want 
on your face, what I want to see is the best orgasm you've ever had. <laughs> and when you I, watch I that song, knowing that. that, it's never not funny. Uh, but it, it's, it's Roddy and Tommy's music. It's that ode to, we, we talked a lot about the Karate Kids. We talked a lot about those kind of 80s flicks, which are kind of macho, but kind of camp at the same time. Um, and, and the way that those two things feed into each other. And then, of course, the secret sauce is Ben Wiggins, uh, yeah. a, man, a man who defies the notion of sexuality because he is just unbelievably charismatic and attractive to every human being on the planet, I think, regardless <laughs> of whatever they, cons- so whatever they consider themselves oh to be on the Kinsey scale. Uh, he is so... Uh, Nason used to refer to him as the man with eyes you could dive into. And, uh, and, and Ben was really nervous about it because Ben is not a natural singer and hadn't done much before, but he took singing lessons. Uh, and then went into the studio with Roddy and Tommy and they were like, do you want to try a falsetto? And when he did, we knew the song was going to work. <laughs> yeah, that he is incredible in that that moment. I think one of the parts we talked about the most was sort of the uh, them them pushing him on the shopping cart. Like he's, you know, Washington so on the Delaware. So good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just so, it's so fantastic. Um, that was one of those days where like I was there as well to choreograph and then I like was like I don't need to do anything <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask that if, if any of that was let them have fun. no I was there more as like a like a, a scale of too little or too much and like which is always kind of nice to be around to just like kind of go up to your friends and be like you see what you did there and then Ben would be like yeah I'm like you need to take that too far and he's like I will and I'm like okay great <laughs> 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 that whole character of Nick, especially from that song on, like with every line he has, the character just becomes so much more nuanced and complex and developed. Like this whole off-screen backstory we kind of get with him and his dad is just like, yeah. it's just, like how did you come up with like kind of that backstory for him? Well, it, it, it that that one kind of came over time. Do you know what I find really? really pleasing about this it's actually incredibly touching for me um when i heard you guys really break down that scene um it gave me a warm glow inside because uh, i remember chatting to the crew afterwards when we were wrapping the film and chatting to jillian you know, the script uh, script editor script exec and saying do you know i'm so proud of this film everyone's done an amazing job i'm still not sure to this day i was I actually nailed that scene between anna and nick at the end i'm still not quite sure it works and to this day, like, i always reflect back upon that scene in the script and think is it a bit on the nose? Does it come naturally? Does it? And to hear you all break it down and, and, and really feel like it worked really meant a lot to me. Um, with Nick, what was really, and this is, I think, the teacher coming out, you start with a jock character. And I knew very early on when we looked at the kind of social politics of the movie, there were two things that were really important to me when I kind of embarked upon the solo draft after, after we lost Ryan, which was, firstly, there's to get this thing financed, there's going to be a lot of pushback against some of the aspects that we consider more um, subtly feminist. So there are going to be a lot of like, oh, can Anne and John not just kiss? That we're going to have to fight back. And we're going to have to have a think about how that presents. And I, I, am, I will be damned before somebody puts my name on a script which has the bury your gaze trope in it. Uh, I'd been reading a lot of stuff on Twitter. I'd been having my heart broken by the number of times that straight writers had just not picked up on this stuff. And they were basically, but we've got gay characters and they're amazing. And then they die two episodes later. Um, and it just seems so obvious to me, like, you know, and to be fair, like this was never an argument amongst the development team. I raised it early and just said, look, I think Steph should be a queer character. It's important we have a queer character, but the one thing we need to bear in mind at all times is if we swap characters around, if a different character becomes queer, if we think about the representation in different ways, that character cannot die. 
they need to walk away because apparently this never happens. So with those two things yeah. in mind, <laughs> then you start to look at the other characters and think about who they are when they die. And Nick was always the difficult one because when you have all of these kind of social politics in mind, you want to represent a character who doesn't naturally fit into that because then you're just kind of writing, you're writing a woke script, which is very easy. You know, you're, you're not actually a, a, asking any challenging questions. You're not saying, well, these are things people face in the world. I'm never going to put a slur in there but I definitely want to represent the fact that not everybody is down with everything. Uh, and Nick was my way into that. I knew very early on that he and Anna had had a thing. And then I, then I was like, well, if we're doing this properly, and again, Nisa and I used to talk about this a lot. It's quite a broad movie. It's quite a stylized movie, but it's about real things that teenagers experience. So they've not just had a thing, they've slept together. Let's just, let's just say they've slept together. The very next step from that then becomes, and the one thing I cannot do here is have Anna embarrassed that she slept with a boy. It's like that's you see it all the time and it's dumb. Like mm, so yes, many yeah. of my students yes. were sleeping with each other. It's dumb. Yeah. Once you've made those steps, Nick starts to kind of crystallize around that. And it was like, okay, he's definitely being a bit of a dick about it, but I don't think he's being a dick about it because they slept together. I think he got freaked out and I think they got close. What would they get close over? Well, she's got a thing going on with her dad. And I know that Nick is a bit of a rebel. It's kind of interesting that there's an army base in town. What if his dad's in the army? Well, no, they, wouldn't, they would be mismatched then, wouldn't they? And it kind of came organically thinking through that. So by the time I reached that scene, as much as the script was pre-planned and I knew at that point, Nick would kind of, essentially, I think in my outline, it said, this is the scene where Nick realizes Anna's owed an apology. And when I came to write the scene, I realized, no, it's not. It's not just that. It's the scene where we realize actually Nick's been holding something back this entire time, which explains why he's so emotionally raw and buttoned up. Uh, and then, you know, you just pull from the zombie, uh, you know, catalog, don't you? The idea that I had to kill somebody whom I loved. Now, to be fair to Ryan, to give him a shout out, in the very original um, short, Anna has to kill John because Anna, John gets bitten and zombifies and attacks her. And then Anna has to kill him. It's quite bleak. And I always liked the beats, but I thought it was wrong for Anna and John. And then I realized, oh, this is, this is where we have it. This is what's happened. This is why Nick is so broken. It's easy. I think it's somewhere I remember saying, um, Nick's, problem is that, Nick's problem is that he'd like to change his spots, but everyone loves a leopard. And, <laughs> and, and that's kind of at the center of who he is. And this thing with his dad has properly broken him. But while his friends are around, he's able just to pretend everything was the way it was. And that's right at the center of Soldier at War as well. Mm. But by the time we hit that scene in the tech room, and it was very deliberately a tech room as well, because it was the room where he and his friends would have hung out and carved their names into the table and all of that. That's where Nick kind of became a real character for me. Uh, and it's really lovely that that sold for you guys as well. And honestly, do you know, the way that the queer community has really embraced this movie will never not make me happy. But the way that so many um, queer women in particular really find John and Nick compelling straight male characters, I find really satisfying as well because it can yeah. be done. It's just about thinking about things, I guess. Totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Did, did you have a uh, copy of the, uh, or I should say, did you have a version of the script that, where Nick died? Uh, yes. Nick surviving happened really late and it, was basically, it basically came down to, oh my God, Anna is, <laughs> Anna's walking out of this theater with a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the last, you know, that, that, the end of that movie is so dark and we were worried for a long time that it was going to stop us getting it made. But it was one thing Ryan and I were always really firm on that we wanted to make a movie with heart and laughs and hope, but we're not going to run away from the fact that at the end, dark stuff happens because this is about a dark experience for teens we want to present as real. So once John dies and Tony dies and both of those things work, we've seen Chris and Lisa die off camera. We're pretty sure Steph survives because we only saw her walk away. But then of course, Anna gets out at the end and it looks like she might have bailed on her. 
it just struck me that Nick going down in a blaze of glory is a repeated beat. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we've seen John go down that yeah. way. Nick almost sacrifices himself for Anna, and I didn't want two straight men doing that twice. So mm-hmm. there was that sense of like, well, of course Nick would do this because that's who he is. But actually, of course he would survive because he's the survivor. He and Anna are the survivor. Actually, he, Anna and Steph, if you think about yes. them, are actually the survivors of the group. If you think about their personality, if you think about what they've been through, if you think about the way that they face out to the world, it actually, it makes no sense at all in terms of the archetypes of these movies that they survive together, but it makes every sense if you think about who they are. And I think that Nick walking it's... into that theater at the end. I also came up with the line first, I don't like your boyfriend. And I'm <laughs> saying, he's not my boyfriend. And then Tony's saying, well, there's some good news. So the moment I had that line, I knew as the scene worked also. Oh, it's okay, I can bring him back because I've got a gag. <laughs> yeah, I think that that scene where he sort of sacrifices himself, I think works so well there because it is clear that it's not about Anna like yeah. especially with his yeah. reprise of you know his own song of his when it comes to killing zombies and the head of the class like it's clear that that is about him yeah he yeah, yeah, is yeah. going to go down killing zombies that is what he's going to do it's not because he wants her he wants anything from her other than you know for him to have been the one to save her I also think dying lets Nick off the hook you know, mm-hmm. like Anna, Anna needs to live because it's Anna's story and it's her coming of age. And actually the whole thing, what, what was actually really difficult and I think remains difficult that Anna as a character this day now, Ella Hunt deserves so much credit for the amount of kind of charisma and heart that she embodied the character with. But Anna is a difficult character because she starts the movie wanting to get out of town and she finishes the movie getting out of town. And the whole thing about giving her an arc is she has to realize there's a cost. That's not quite as broad and kind of cinematic as coming of age themes usually are you know they're usually a lot more like the most classic one is there's no place like home which is actually pretty toxic as messages go but um the the notion that you have this big broad i'm coming of age and i have learned this really positive lesson anna's lesson is i was right to want to go but i didn't appreciate what i had which is a little bit more subtle um but she has to survive steph has to survive a because you know queer characters just don't but also she's a survivor and she still has to find her way in the world like she still has story to tell and Nick has to survive because if he dies right now, he gets off the hook. Like he's, 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 he hasn't lived his life brilliantly. He's definitely a little broken. But if he dies right now, he gets to die the hero he thinks he is. Yeah. And that's not good enough. Like he, he needs to learn to be a better person. So when the three of them leave in that car at the end, they all still have places to go, I guess. That yeah. reminds me of, of a question Ben had, I think. Well, I think we, I think we kind of uh, answered it earlier. Uh, <laughs> That it's re- that if we're moving forward, it's really uh, in terms of in the romance angle, it's Anna and Steph. <laughs> I think, I think uh, you can Ben came really strong when we were talking about it on the power thruple angle. I saw that. Yeah, it was really funny. Um, <laughs> do you know the only thing that makes me think that I, I don't know if Steph would stand for Nick. Like you know, yeah, I, I know that can work in all no. sorts of combinations, but I just don't know if she would put up with him enough for him to be around. It's uh, what do you think, Sarah? Post lots of character development for Nick. Nick yeah, still got sure. a lot more to go. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I think what would happen if there was like a 2.0 is like, I, I bet you Steph hightails it for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, mm-hmm. I gotta go and I gotta figure out who I am. And then they find her and she's like totally transformed into crazy earth witch. I am so into Like harvest the earth and like connect to like vibrations within it. <laughs> <laughs> And then they do black magic. Um, they try to bring Lisa and Chris back from the dead, but nice. because that's imperfect alchemy, you can't bring back something that no longer exists. 
they end up like morphing together to create like a Frankenstein person. So it's like Lisa and Chris are the same person. <laughs> Marley and Chris would love that. I love that. <laughs> that then they really are together for And then they really are. Yeah. Basically, uh, Sarah is pitching the Gremlins 2 to the first movie's Gremlins. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so Hulk Hogan has to be in it. Yes! Oh, but I think Hulk Hogan's a little more problematic these days, isn't he? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Definitely. So, we'll find another wrestler. Randy People Savage. like John the Cena and Batista seems nice. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. character? Cena! So, <laughs> I feel like it would probably be John that has to jump through like a brick wall making a perfect Batman symbol. Yes! <laughs> yes! Malcolm would be very on board for that. Uh, Malcolm, uh, another Easter egg side note, uh, wore an absolutely incredible Ghostbusters uh, jumper when he was auditioning for, the fir- for John for the first time. And we're not going to lie, the jumper really helped. Like uh, just seeing him in it was like, oh, this works. But he was wearing a really wonderful piece of Ghostbusters knitwear. Well, the one John line that, uh, that I was talking about is, because like, we talked about how anything pandemic related hits different in oh, yeah. now in 2020 yeah. but there was also just a hits differently after avengers endgame of john going <laughs> iron, iron man is alive oh yeah <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not gonna lie when i was sitting in the cinema watching that i did have a little chuckle to myself I was like, well <laughs> that date is quicker than i expected <laughs> uh do you know what really is is wonderful kind of looking at the anna stuff we, we ryan and i talked so much about the conversation nick and john would have in the ball pit about celebrities and that all credit was due that was ryan's idea that, you know, two boys, they're a bit bored. I bet they talk about who's been zombified and who hasn't. And it was also his, the Mary Shag kill was also Ryan's idea. But we talked that the, the celebrities changed so much over time. And recently, uh, after the Iron Man stuff, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's all. I mean, Beyonce's fairly evergreen. I don't know how often people talk about Rihanna now. It's like Taylor Swift. I don't know. I did a Google for most search celebrities. Tay-Tay's still fine. She's still up there at the top. <laughs> I was just so. like, that is, that is just, that's just genius screenwriting. That's never going to age. Taylor Swift <laughs> will always, oh, always yeah. be a contemporary reference. I think the one thing we're all agreed on is that in the zombie apocalypse, Tom Holland is not making it an hour. <laughs> oh, bless his little cotton socks. Right. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that and the evacuation selfies are definitely a thing. Oh, like, oh yeah. so good. So right. <laughs> I was very sequence. proud of that. That came out of the teaching thing. That was just like the number of times that our students would find ways of getting the most ridiculously hashtag selfie into their week. And uh, the moment we talked about evacuations, like, well, this is the first thing everyone does. Of it course felt- they take photos of themselves by the fences with zombies. It felt <laughs> so, that whole sequence, like with the, the ball, pit, like the celebrities and the selfies, it yeah. felt so real <laughs> and so fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, also so, one of the few movies that people reference a lot where our characters instantly just go, oh, it's zombies, as opposed to it's walkers, it's, you know, it's, you know, yeah. it's infected. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a movie set in a world where zombie movies exist, which was always a bit of a challenge. Well, it's really, it's really nice to have a movie, you know, the sort of the postmodern zombie movie where it's the, the whole zombie thing is, is such a trope now that it's, it's refreshing to see people uh, in film not take that so much for granted in sort of the opposite way where they're like, okay, so these are zombies and do we have, you know, we know what works in, you know, the zombie film. So we're just going to mark that as red. Like, okay, we know they're zombies. We know that they, that, that we kill them and all that kind of stuff. And also the, the 
coming back around to some of the more tragic elements of the film, infection that kills your loved ones is not taken for granted the way that it is in other mm. uh, other zombie films. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that it's hard for me to get into zombie films is because I feel like that's taken for granted so much. But this movie really, even though it is a comedy musical, really wonderfully and, 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 and simply, it's not overwrought, it's not over complex, but it still brings so much out of those characters, the, of the, that reality that they're having to face. That's lovely. Um, so I've talked a lot, Sarah. Did you want to? Did you want to chip in on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I, uh, I agree. I think it's kind of. This isn't necessarily to contribute to. This is a a, a, a new path I'm going down based off of what you just said. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that. I find that we we don't really know what we're going to do in these situations, right? And like, mm. and I was reading, I was listening, I was I was listening to a podcast about, hear me out, about the uh, London bombings during World War II, mm-hmm. and there was something like statistically depression in the city of London went down something crazy like fifty percent after that over the next few years because even though that was the worst thing that possibly could have happened, people died terror like you've never seen like suddenly people had something to fight for and that sense of responsibility and community is so barren and um deeply you know downtown life suburban life and especially in suburban life which is wild because you are on a sidewalk of thousands of people and you're all strangers you're Mm -hmm. you can touch the person's house next to you and they're strangers so finally having this sense of camaraderie and like in a weird way like it's even kind of like now too, like my auto response to bad situations is to be like, what is like, like true laughter and and chaotic, (laughs) like chaotic disbelief and humor, because it's so you truly realize, especially in this time that like, this is all nonsense. This is all chaos. And all this structure is just like, these silly little rules that we've paid for ourselves to kind of like, allow all of us to get along amicably. But what it's also doing is preventing us from actually being sincere because we have to abide by these rules, which please everybody, but doesn't actually bring the best out of us. And I even in another capacity, like the way that people responded to COVID-19 was almost like everybody became the extras in the zombie film. Nobody was the hero. Uh, yeah. Really interesting. Nobody yeah. was Brad Pitt in, mm. what was that film, that the, the zombie film? What was that one? World War Z? Z, yeah, sorry. No, no one was, <laughs> nobody saw themselves as the hero of the story. Everybody became the crazy mob. Everybody went, oh, in the films, we all rush to the stores and fight for toilet paper. So yeah. that's what we do. We all do that. Like, And it's like, why haven't you seen yourselves as the author of this narrative why are you suddenly the, mo- the mob again and it's because that's what we believe we are is that we aren't actually individuals who can go out and belong to other people we're just a part of like this huge amorphous world but we do have responsibilities and we can choose the, the stories that we want to write and we can live those out we don't have to go hoarding toilet paper but it's been like an interesting thing kind of witnessing that happen mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think what's really, from what you just said there, Sarah, is really interesting when you look at that through the kind of writing lens and through, um, you know, what Emily was saying about realistic reactions to, to infection and death is that mm-hmm. it's, it's, really, uh, it's really hard to write a story where grand stakes are important to just one or two people. Uh, and I, I think that's where, you know, something like I am a massive Marvel movie fanboy and I was absolutely one of those people crying when those portals opened at the end of uh, Avengers Endgame because those big archetypal 
mythic moments really strike us somewhere really uh, they strike us somewhere deep inside that I think goes beyond our everyday experience and that's why they work when we were looking at Anna and and, and to touch upon what just Sarah said about the, the pandemic and stuff we knew we were making a really stylized really broad movie but the the only thing that made it work for us was to think about okay if these were real teens in a nowhere town where nothing happens and now the biggest thing ever has happened mm. I don't know how you process that beyond, oh no, what about my dad? Oh no, what about my best friend? Um, mm. and, and that's where that kind of stuff comes home. But it also mm. was a massive nightmare for writing because it's an ensemble movie in which we had to consistently look for sleight of hand ways to not have to take into account every bloody family member of every character. Yeah, which is why right. when you actually take a step back, the one thing that always bothers me a little bit about the film, it doesn't seem to affect it anymore, which I'm glad about, is I was always slightly concerned there was a, a an ever so slight um, subtext that all of our characters were slightly from broken families, which is like never the intention. But when you stop and look and say, well, Steph's parents are away and Nick's dad who he kills in the army and Chris lives with his gran and the parents aren't around. We don't really find out much about Lisa's parents at all, but the canon is they've gone to stay. Um, she and uh, her mother and stepfather have gone to stay with her stepfather's sister for Christmas and she's staying with Chris and his gran for the first time. And of course you've got Anna, you know, who herself has a dead mother and that is a trope which is definitely problematic in all sorts of ways. And, you know, so I always had that slight concern of like, oh, what do we do? Now, John, John's mum is in that movie. Uh, I think maybe you picked oh. up on this at some point. And oh, John's, John's mum, everyone's favorite <laughs> question <Yeah>. mark. <laughs> she, uh, Chris she is going to be lines. elated to hear this. She had scenes, uh, not, not massive amounts, way more in earlier scripts. And then as we started to kind of refine the script because there were too many characters, she had to kind of drop down a bit. But there was a point I had to say to the guys, look, I know, and I know this is going to be cut back, but John can't just exist in a vacuum. <laughs> like right? this whole thing about we're going to go to the school and we're going to save Lisa and we're going to save Tony and John doesn't care. Um, so we need, <laughs> we need something. Yeah. So John's mum is there, but I, I do remember, I, I think it may have been in your podcast actually saying at some point, you're like, is John's mum at the theatre? Like, is this a thing that people in towns go, go, to, a, go to see a show that their kid That's isn't so going to At which point I answered out loud, yes, it's exactly what people in small towns do. Yeah, that's what we did that. That was my small town. If the school show is on and there's nothing else to do that night, in my mind, she was in the PTA. uh, But she actually has an argument with Savage, which we shot, where she essentially, uh, in his scene where he's like, oh, this is my school and you can't leave and I've got a 10 point plan. She turns around to him and says something along the lines of, if you love this place so much, you can just rot in it. And then she starts to pack stuff up. And it was a lovely little moment. But there was that big thing in the movie of like, who are you? <laughs> like, why so are you saying Chris, this? Chris but actually was, was sure that that was John's mom. Yeah, that's not John's sure if mom. John's mom was a teacher and that was why she was there or if... Uh... No, nope, just, just John's mom who's on the PTA and was there for the show that night. Uh, and, and that's, yeah. <laughs> gold, gold, gold star for Chris. <laughs> but, uh, but again, it's that point that we were just picking up on there. Like these things need to be immediate to the kids to matter. And I think in the pandemic, you have absolutely seen that. There's a big concern about the people I live with and those closest to me and those who might be vulnerable and those who might be elderly. Um, but I, I completely agree, Sarah, when you put people out en masse, you end up either with runs for toilet paper or people rushing to the beach or just say, ah, this doesn't really affect me. And um, when yeah. you're writing a movie about a massive crisis like this, the only way into the drama is just to think of the one or two people who are super important. Uh, the one exception to that rule, of course, being Steph, who cares about the world at large, but doesn't really know how to do anything about it. I also love during your podcast when you're like, how the hell 
Would she expect her girlfriend, who's also in high school? <laughs> what a, like, that is so unrealistic and deeply greedy and super codependent. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, so our girlfriend's also older, but not in the, but, but didn't make the cut. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, she, her girlfriend, I always thought, was in college. Um, That's what I also thought. And, and kind mm. of in the next town. Uh, so it was it was less like I expected to come over more. Oh, I thought we'd be spending Christmas together. But again, yeah. it's one of those things. God's like screenwriting. It's so hard. <laughs> Just, yeah. so, there's so, so much there's you her, have to pack in. Yeah. She, uh, she never and, starred in the movie, This Girlfriend. She was always. No, no. Uh, which was, camera. you know, and actually, Sexual. again, it was a really lovely thing. I think you guys touched upon because I, I, I love that you asked the question because it, it was going through my head a lot over you know, does this actually count as representation if we don't see the relationship on screen? And I, I really like that you settled on, I think Steph herself is such an openly, clearly, uh, confidently queer character that it counts as that. But I did drag myself through a lot of kind of sleepless nights about, should we see her? But then the problem with that is in the end, she's going to have to die. Yeah. And that was where I settled. It's like, that's why we don't. Uh, I don't think we can because the narrative is already really busy with characters. We already have a couple of relationships which are kind of dysfunctional. And if we bring her in, she's going to exist for Steph to realize she's not really loved. And then this woman dies. And that is the worst thing that we could do with this character. And also, um, how nice is it to have one character have an unknown? Like, she doesn't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. She's like, my parents yeah, literally could be yeah. alive or dead. And, like, I'm living in this limbo, and I just have to be okay with it. I will never know if my parents died or not. Or, this, or my girlfriend. I will yeah. never know. And, yeah. like, that's crazy that's like yeah. that's like the most that's even more horrible that's like and she's still okay or you know trying to p keep it together and pulling a shift it's like uh, uh it's like yeah. you said uh, it's like you said uh, steph is a survivor mm -hmm. absolutely well there's something Me too. <laughs> yes yes absolutely well i was gonna say that there's another crisis that that is through which i've lived that made this very relatable to me which is the the california fires and yeah. The kind of the the kind of reaction to that and and seeing these people prioritize and come together and um you know the 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 humor but also you know taking it as seriously as we really have to and you know the idea of not knowing what's going on you know in this case it was mostly not knowing what state your house is in but you know also family members being up in the hills and not being able to get a hold of them but uh the that's very a very profound angle there with the you know you never know how a character is going to act in this also talking a little bit more realistically about how you know these characters are trying to survive and you know some of them think that they are the protagonist some of them don't and uh, that's one thing i think is so lovely about the uh the decisions made at the end of the film with nick and steph and you know who we see and who we don't you know and i think that i mean there's a lot of decisions in this movie are really great to see in film and sure. i would love to see more <laughs> i think one scene that really shows beautifully the importance and the stakes of small things was uh the scene of chris risking his life to get his phone because it could be mm. the only mm. way of like yes. having his grandmother and lisa still absolutely yeah i know it's funny that it, it I wish I could take credit for an incredibly profound moment of screenwriting there. All I had in my head was, <laughs> he's going to need those videos when I kill him later. <laughs> uh, and actually the scene ended up writing itself around that moment of like, I want a moment of peril and Chris and Steph need to fall out here. So actually him going back for his phone is really neat. And you know, it, 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 but you know, it, draft 
draft two or three after you've written that scene, you start to realize, oh, there's other, there's other stuff going on here. But sometimes these things are happy accidents, <laughs> which is, uh, I think once we'd nailed human voice and knew what that sequence was about, I knew why he'd be so upset about his phone. But these things do take time sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're, we're almost out of a uh, question we wanted to ask, and I, we've held you up pretty long here. I had a couple of little junk drawer uh, questions that got thrown in here that I just wanted to uh, ask. Uh, ben had a question about uh, Christmas-themed names, and uh, <laughs> I, Ben pointed out during the podcast, I had not even realized that a bunch of the like names are holiday-themed. Yeah. Um, did you have any, any that you rejected, any that you... Um, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Um, we, Ryan and I, it always tickled us that we do that. And it was funny. We, we were always insistent on not leaning into it. Um, so Anna Shepherd works well because it's kind of a double pun. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got the Shepherds and you've also got the notion that she ends up kind of shepherding the rest of the group. And also I'm a massive Mass Effect fan. So that was just <laughs> yeah. a nice little nod. Nice. Um, and then yeah. once, that, once that train started rolling, it's very hard to stop yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell Steph you one North thing. And... I, yeah, I want to shout out to our, um, uh, our, our uh, producer, Lauren Lamar, who did all of the clearances for names for this movie. Another thing I was completely ignorant of uh, until we had to do it, we had to shuffle all of those around because, and I don't want to say it in case it's a weird legality thing, but Steph had the surname of one of the other characters at one point, and it turned out there was literally only one Steph X in the entire UK. And that meant we couldn't use the name because we would be, um, we would be in legal trouble for misrepresenting that particular human being. That one person. Uh, that one person in the entire UK whose name is Steph X. Um, mm. So we ended up juggling a lot of those around to the point where I genuinely don't remember them all now. I know that Steph North, I know Anna Shepherd, and I'm pretty sure it's John Pine. And obviously everyone knows Nick Saint because that's a terrible, terrible pun <laughs> that most people miss, uh, which I really love. Um, at one point, uh, and it was too far, but at one point in the draft, Ryan and I had his gang called the Disciples, <laughs> the Disciples, which we found very funny. Yes. But again, you sometimes have to pull back a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I actually don't remember what we settled on for Chris and for Lisa, but I know Frost was in there at one point. Um, oh, it's Lisa Snow. It's definitely mm -hmm. Lisa Snow, which I, I guess, Lisa Snow. I think it means it's Chris. It was Chris Frost, because for a while in the script, he was Chris Pine, and it took me that long to realize we couldn't do that. You know that way you just can't see the wood for the trees, literally, in this case. Uh, yeah. And it's just like, oh, oh, wait, Chris Pine. No, wait, hang on. Um, so they <laughs> all shuffled okay. it was, yeah, It was a bit of fun that caused way more trouble than it really deserved. <laughs> the, the one other uh, junk drawer question I had here was... Uh, TJ, uh, who has done some of these episodes with us, wanted to uh, ask about, wanted me to ask about the Buffy musical and how much influence it had on, on you and on this movie. <laughs> All the influence in the world. Uh, I am a diehard, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer quite literally changed my life. Uh, and uh, that, that TV show was in my veins. Um, that TV show was the reason God, this is so inside baseball now. Uh, when, I started, uh, when I started university, weirdly, um, I applied to do a joint honors in computing science and theater studies because it was the late 90s and you could do whatever you wanted. Right. Uh, and uh, my thinking was, well, I love theater and computing will get me a job. So, hey, uh, I realized very quickly I despised computing science because I hate maths and I just really struggled with it. And I took an English lit as my third subject. I was like, I think I want to do English and theater. And I watched um, an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I got to the end of it feeling super moved and, and it, God, this is so emo, said out loud to my 18-year-old self in the room as I was watching it, 
I can't study computing. Like I just said it out loud at the end of an episode of Buffy because I'd been so moved by the plight of these teens in the supernatural world. Um, and I changed, my, I changed my degree as a result and focused on English and theater, which led me to teaching, which led me to writing and everything else. Um, so Buffy is enormously important to me. And Once More With Feeling is uh, a gen genuine, I think is a genuine watermark in television. And alongside Hush and Restless um, and The Body, uh, I, oh God, this is not a Buffy podcast. Stop, Alan. Um, <laughs> I, I could talk about those for a long time. Uh, yeah, so there was a lot. There was a lot of it in in Anna when I was looking at it. But I think the one thing that was really important to me was we're, we're going to create a, a story with the vibe of those things, but very specifically through um, the voice of ourselves. You know, and, and the students I taught, the upbringing I had, and John had, and Nathan had, you know, Ryan had, Nick had. You know, the, the fact that the production team as a whole were drawing upon very British experiences for what is in many ways a very American format was very much in our minds. But every time somebody references Buffy, another angel of my life gets its wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic to know. I'm, I'm sure TJ will uh, appreciate that. Well, that it's, we've, we've had you guys here uh, for quite a while now. Um, so before, before we let you go, was there, are you guys working on anything right now that you wanted to promote or let, let people know about? Sarah? Alan, me, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I am, as I said, working on some music, which will come out early next year. I think Ooh. it's going to be really weird. I've had a long time kind of collecting and selecting band players and then getting rid of them because, um, and I quote every single time some hipster with a chip on their shoulder. Look, I'm a hipster too, but there's different <laughs> breeds. Yes. Um, uh, being like, I don't know, Sarah, it's just too theatrical. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> David Bowie was a mime. And, <laughs> and David Byrne studied Kabuki theater, which is the entire concept of what the Talking Heads is based on. It's very yes. theatrical. Yeah, yes, deeply absolutely. theatrical. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? So it's, it's like highly stylized. I'm very excited. And I'm like not compromising my integrity for the first time. So I'm very excited to do it. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just working on some TV shows right now. I'm choreographing. Um, I'm playing um, the role of uh, a nod to who is Martha Graham, the famous contemporary choreographer. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I got an opportunity to play her. So, yeah, that'll be done probably in the next month or so. But I've just been, more than anything, just kind of collaborating with my friends and family and trying to see what the next few steps of my future is going to look like. And I really want to make sure that no matter what it is, that I have creative control over my ideas and that I provide opportunities for the people I love and my friends and get, bring them into the party. So if you guys want to be in the band, you can be in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, to, I don't know. I don't really play anything, but. Um, so you don't have to. <laughs> if you want album art, I can do that. I, that's incredible. You know what? I'll get back in touch with you about oh that. God, Cause that's please. very cool. I would love, love to. to talk to you more about that. Do you guys have uh, social media stuff? Sarah Swire at Sarah Swire Instagram at don't my Twitter don't trust that I'm never on there <laughs> um, but yeah I'm mostly on Instagram as my platform Big awesome. old scrapbook um, and I am oh god I'm, I'm that really annoying writer who's working on loads of stuff and can't talk about any of I mean, it um, it's yeah. so frustrating and it's the weirdest I mean I, I just have to tell you guys this it's it's the weirdest job in the world in that you can make a living and be constantly working on things and quite literally have nothing made for years. <laughs> so you can say to people, yeah, oh, I'm working on loads of stuff. Oh, when's it out? 
<laughs> sometime maybe if it gets made um so yeah I, I'm, I'm on a horror movie right now which is based on an indie graphic novel and that's all i can say um with a really great uh producer um who's made a bunch of stuff in the past and that's been a really amazing experience we hope it gets made we're talking to directors but there's still a lot to go and obviously in these times of covid uh making a horror movie where you're going to require a lot of supporting artists is a difficult prospect so hopefully hopefully we can get to shoot that next year but we'll see uh, but that's kind of a, a techno horror um, about uh, communication and the relationship between two sisters. Um, and I, mm. I really love it. Uh, and uh, I'm working on some early TV stuff. I've got, I've got the opportunity now to do a lot of original stuff of my own, which means it's all at very early stages. But there is um, a decent bit of interest around and I've got some really wacky stories that I'm, I'm enjoying kind of delving into. Um, I was saying to uh, Sarah just before a little catch up, um, a lot of my stories have female protagonists and my agent who is uh, Fiona Grant the Charnel Agency who's wonderful uh, one of my best friends friends uh, she was saying early in the summer like I love I love the way you write women I love your scripts but do you have anything to say about men and I had this really weird visceral reaction where I just said no um, and then had to kind of sit with that for a bit and like, oh that's that's why do I oh interesting and and yeah long and short of that is I went off and wrote a really interesting kind of sci-fi road movie about toxic masculinity and, and my, my <laughs> issues with my issues with what it is to be a man and the problems and um, what it feels like to kind of reflect back on my own behavior in the past and things and that's been kind of uncomfortable but I think is a really I think it's a really interesting uh, version of what a road movie could be so I'm hoping to get that place somewhere um, I'm doing some video games work with Blazing Griffin who made Anna and the Apocalypse uh, they also have a video game studio and a post-production house they're a powerhouse operation um, and we have nothing to announce but I do um, I do a lot of narrative work with them and their projects when they start out um, on the video game side and we're doing some really fun stuff there at the moment that I had to do some really interesting American research on the other day actually so that was cool and I'm also working on a stage musical that I cannot talk about, which is a shame. And again, is very early, but I'm having a ton of fun and um, working with people I've worked with before on that as well. So a, f a bunch of projects across various things that I'm really enjoying, none of which I can talk about. And I don't think I'll be able to for a little while, I'm afraid. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll hover around the, uh, the Twitters and the Instagrams for those. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm Alan H. McDonald. Uh, Alan H. Uh, for my very odd middle name. Uh, so Alan H. McDonald on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm the opposite of Sarah. I barely ever use Instagram because I'm scared of pictures. And I use Twitter way too much because it is a horrific cesspool that's destroyed society, but I also can't get off it. So uh, yeah. Also well, as a writer, it's a great way to there. write and not actually get anything yeah. done. Oh, well, yeah. But, uh, do you know, <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a great use for not getting work done. I get so much no though, work done. Sorry, I, I, I do think that the one thing I would say in Twitter's um, favor, and God, it's hard, uh, but the one thing I would say is if you curate the people you follow, mm. particularly as someone with a level of privilege that I enjoy, it's a really, it's a really, really good way to try to stay on top of where um, the cultural conversation is with regards to things like oppression, with regards to representation. Um, so it can be... I, I, yeah, I, I, the level of privilege I enjoy, I can only imagine what it's like to be at the center of that maelstrom. To, to be someone kind of looking, looking in, it, does, it can be exhausting. But I think it's super important, as long as I do this job, that at least I try to stay ahead of where the conversation is at. Um, and it's yeah. all about trying not to do any harm, I think, more than anything. So that's really the reason I'm still on Twitter. I use Twitter to spy on people. That's all. <laughs> it's also nice. a very good and reason. And LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, the nerdiest way to spy on people. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I find everybody over the age of 40 that like I'm yeah. trying to 
I'm going to be okay guy. I'm going to get ahead on all the business tips. <laughs> I just thought I'd hit you up. I hear you had a seven year business anniversary. LinkedIn. <laughs> I did, I'm not lying. I've done that before. I have a LinkedIn account so I can spy on people that refuse to have social media. If I want to figure out if they're, Okay, people to work with because you don't know sometimes. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a good show, actually. Good, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you, Steph, and thank you, or Steph. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you, Sarah, <laughs> and thank you, Alan. Uh, thank so, you so much, much for joining guys. us. It's been, a, it's been a joy. This is awesome. This is so awesome. This, this is oh. incredible. Ah, incredible. Well, yes. I've had a wonderful evening as well. I can't speak more highly of you wonderful souls. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you again for taking the time to look at the, you know, look at the movie with so much um yeah. so much heart and in, in in such a thoughtful manner. It's really appreciated. This has been a special episode of the Progressively Horrified podcast. This episode was produced by Jeremy Whitley and hosted by Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, and Emily Martin. Progressively Horrified could use your support on Patreon, where you can unlock Patreon-exclusive episodes, get early access to regular episodes, and get Progressively Horrified gear. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Call 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening. have access to a company I used to work for, I still have access to their LinkedIn page and nobody seems to have noticed that as I slowly transform it into a Transformers fan page. Have you oh, actually? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say which company, but yes. Oh man. Incredible. <laughs> uh, it's just a profile picture of Optimus Prime in a tie. <laughs> <laughs>